Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray, and George Belshaw of Metro.co.uk. Let's jump straight into it, George. Novak Djokovic reigns supreme once again. Uh, sum up for me his performance over the week of the Shanghai Masters. Was it as consummately easy as we expected it might be? Probably the best tournament I've seen him play I would say and I know that's he, he didn't end up playing someone like Federer Nadal Murray Favrinka Del Potro but in terms of his level throughout a whole week you know his serving level was unbelievable he didn't drop serve all week which is the first time he's ever done that at tournament he only faced four break points throughout the week and he beat some good players like you know he beat Anderson he beat Zverev, mauled Zverev. Two and one. I mean, absolutely, absolutely destroyed, destroyed him. him. Um, and Chorich was playing a good good week. He'd beaten people like Vavrinka, Federer, uh, Del Potro as he kind of retired and made him look pretty ordinary at the, at the end. I mean, I I wrote something yesterday basically saying I think Djokovic could easily go on, win all four slams in a row now, could easily win all four next year. I just don't see anyone near him if he carries on like this. He's just at a phenomenally high level at the moment. The problem is on on all surfaces, he's extremely difficult to beat. He's not. I, fi- I find with Djokovic that players seem able to hold him. They seem able to contain him for a bit, but there's no let up. You know, even when you play to your highest level, his defense is so good. You know that cross court backhand that he flicks back across, it makes it so difficult. Even when you're striking the ball so purely, you know, a little bit like playing against Nadal at his best. You think, well, what do I have to do to actually win a point? And then when you do, he's right up against you straight away. If his serving is now at a level... Now, I'm interested by his serve being at such a high level because obviously he's rebuilt his serving motion. Do you think now he's come to terms with that and found a way to give it some pop again? I think it it serves better than it was before. And that's saying something considering where it was in March. But I think he's almost become a bit more federal. Like, you know, Djokovic is never going to have 
the biggest serve on tour. But the accuracy just seems so potent at the minute, and particularly on the big points, he just is able to pick his spots every single time. Um, and you know, for him, the return is almost like a, a serve in itself, anyway, because. You know, servers typically think of guys like Anderson. They serve to get on top of the point mm. and dominate from there. Djokovic is so good at neutralizing opposition serve. It's like he served himself <laughs> to kind of set himself on it. The only player who's comparable returning-wise is Nadal on clay mm. in terms of how he puts himself in control of the point early on. There's no other player like it. And it's arguably the biggest gap between a single player and the rest of the tour in any kind of aspect. The only weakness I see with Djokovic is the overhead. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the famous, famous weakness that he's had forever, it seems. I always enjoy watching him on number one court, Wimbledon, which won't be as windy anymore now they've fully built the roof on it. But on the old number one court, which he always seemed to end up on because they would put Federer and Nadal on centre, he just he hated it so much. The number of times you'd sit there and it would go up and you'd be like, that's Berdic's point. <laughs> it was just horrible. I mean, Becker had a massive go at him about it, didn't he? I think mostly in jest, but yeah. he did say he thought he'd fixed it. I think he said something like he was the worst player in the top 100 at yeah, Smashes. Yeah, worst, worst player something in the like top that. 100 at Smashes. Which is crazy. But I mean, you know, the Jocko smash is quite entertaining, but <laughs> it's allowed to be entertaining because there is no other chink in his armour. And you, you know... You can't play an entire match and just pelting it up in the sky. Or maybe you can. Maybe that's the next tactic. <laughs> you, just, you just hit. You just lob him every time. I think Monfils tried that once. Possibly like the US Open or something. He that's... just was trying to kind of moonball him. Yeah. And it sort of worked for a set. Um, but I think for an entire match, you'd uh, get the crowd on your back quite a lot if you start. We've all played like... those games of tennis where you're oh, playing as someone. I've lost so many like that. Yeah, you're just like, trying to hit the ball at head high every single time. It gets hard. Well, there we go. Maybe, Roger, if you're listening, this is how to beat Novak Djokovic, just so you know. Moon balls. I want to talk about that semi-final against Zverev a little bit. Yeah. Because to lose three games against number four seed, you know, one of the top five players in the world. Was it a Zverev implosion, do you think? Or was this just what Novak can do to people now? Well, the first three games, or four games or whatever, I thought Zverev had come out the better player. And I was thinking, right got a good match here um Zverev obviously beat him in Rome um in 2017 in the final he's got a good record at Masters level he's won three titles there in best of three sets tennis Zverev is arguably as good as any other player's been over the last year and a half but Djokovic just seemed out there once he kind of over rode through that early uh bit of pressure from Zverev he snatched a break out of nowhere Zverev imploded and just seemed like Zverev had no ideas. He, he didn't know where to hit. He didn't serve particularly well, which never helps. But in the baseline rallies, there was so much... He was standing so far back, it was just coming so comfortably either side to Djokovic. There was no real angle pushing him wide. There was no variety. He was getting more and more frustrated. But I thought Djokovic was just so clinical. He couldn't have played a more flawless match. And it, it just goes to show what sort of level you have to be at to even challenge this guy at the minute. You know, Anderson played a great match, played a really, really good first set. It's still, you know, he had one set point. Djokovic is setting up way more break points. Just very, very tough to break this guy down. It's tough to know who, other than Rafa on clay, could stop him in this sort of form. I don't think there's an answer. Let's assume he's going to win the Australian Open because you're convinced of it. And we go into the clay court season... What this this feels a bit like the way Djokovic is playing and the way we know Nadal plays on clay, 
This feels like the unstoppable force against the immovable object. I mean, are we just going to end up with some absurd five-set French Open final where they just slug it out for days? I hope so. I mean, there was a period um, around 2013-14 where we were getting some epic Djokovic-Nadal French Open matches every year. There was a brilliant four-setter one year, which Nadal won. And the quality of that match was superb. And I, I do genuinely think Djokovic in 2015 and 2016 reached his highest level on clay at that stage as Rafa wasn't really around. I know they did meet in 2015 and Djokovic kind of beat him in straight sets, but you could see Rafa was so low on confidence that you'd perhaps put a little asterisk by that. Sure. Or certainly Rafa fans would like to. <laughs> um, but it would just be so nice to see, because Rafa's brilliant on clay, as we've seen the last few years. No one's coming near to him. He's clearly so much better than everyone. Djokovic is so much better than everyone elsewhere on the tour. It would just be so nice to have them both play each other at that sort of level, in that sort of arena. Still probably would just just about back Rafa, but Novak on his day can beat anyone anywhere, I think. I was going to say, if we do get those two in that arena, it'll be like the last hurrah of this great era. But actually, it, and I know we've said this before about Federer, and I, I, we can come on to that later, but it feels like there's nothing stopping them. If Nadal cuts his schedule down more and more and just says, basically, I'm going to own clay until I can't walk, and Djokovic is this renewed figure of fitness and has a new swing and a new serve and all of a sudden has this bionic elbow that seems to work, why can't this this Djokovic-Nadal rivalry go on for two or three years? If Djokovic were to turn up at the French Open in the final and beat Nadal on his doorstep with them both at this level, he would pretty much, I think, cement his status as the best of the three. Mm. You know, to go and beat him there on that stage and do it. So I think, and he'd become the first man to hold all Grand Slams twice sure. of these guys. Um, so that that would be kind of quite momentous. I think Nadal's problem is actually going to be, if you look at his season this year, he's picked up pretty much all his points on the clay, but that's without Novak there. Novak will turn up to a few of these best of three setters and take a few more. So if, if Nadal's not maxing out the points there, hmm. is he going to be a threat for world number one all year round? If, as you say, he's going to build up those points. If Djokovic starts to make a dent in them, you need more from Rafa for the rest of the year round. So I think that that is an interesting kind of narrative in terms of having that one and two ranking. I, I'm expecting Djokovic to be number one for the next two years, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Because I think he's got the legs all year round now to do it. Whereas I think Rafa's, as you say, is going to target the clay. And let's be honest, we talk about rankings and I think non-tennis fans sometimes go, oh, but what does it really matter? And actually, I think the players, it matters if he does. Yeah, year-end certainly does. I, I mean, think Federer's always always thought about... They've all, in fact, all of them have always thought, right, how can I how can I make sure I'm world number one? How can I game it? You know, it, it's definitely something that matters to the players. Probably... You know, as a fifth, that is the fifth slam, isn't it? That big trophy at the end of the year. I, I think so. And, you know, if you look at the records that Djokovic will have in his sights now, and, you know, these guys are so fiercely competitive, don't think they're not wanting this. One of them's obviously Federer's 20 grand slams. But if he finishes world number one this year, which I'm 100% certain he will now, to be perfectly honest, he'll match Federer's totals of year-end number one and become within one of Sampras. Now, it's not beyond the realms of imagination to just see Djokovic overtaking that by 2020. Mm. Had to do a little bit of math there too <laughs> early for that. That's what they call quick maths. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I think I think it really does matter. It's a sort of very attainable achievement for him, something that adds another string to his bow. And something that I'm I'm finding really interesting about this, if Djokovic goes on to have this level of domination, I'm almost expecting it to happen now. Is he going to be the latest ever athlete that we appreciate as the greatest of all time by age? Could he get to a stage in his career at 35 where he surpasses Federer's Grand Slam totals and only then people say... He's the greatest of all time. Would that be the latest ever universal recognition if he was to surpass Federer? Uh, no, because I think if you go back in time, people were much less hasty to throw the term greatest of all time around. We're extremely lucky in tennis at the moment that we do have two guys who've dominated as much. But I think if you go back, most people would say, eh, let's wait to the end of your career and then we'll see how you shaped up. Okay, so in this modern era then, if you think about Messi and Ronaldo and people like that, yeah, I or think in the last it, 20 years. I think in the modern rush to crown a new king, Djokovic has been one of the more underappreciated. But equally, because we haven't been able to, because there have been two blokes out there better than him. And now we have an, a situation where he is both playing better than them and demonstrably better, and be- could get to a point where he has a record better than them. At the moment, there is still enough evidence against him say that he's not the greatest of all time. He's got six fewer Grand Slams than Federer. He spent goodness knows how much less time at world number one. But yes, if he gets there... The, look, let, let's be honest. Tennis careers are 15 years now, not 10. That's the real difference, and that's why that this could come about. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see exactly how we look at Djokovic's career when we get to the end of it. Would you call him the GOAT if he went beyond Federer's Grand Slam Hall? Is that the criteria for you that makes the For me, I think that's the easiest, I think that's the easiest, most obvious. And, you know, I always like to look at things from a wider context of what non-tennis fans look at. And in the end, it's the person who's, you know, who's the best football team of all time? The people who've won the most league titles or the most World Cups. Who's the best tennis player of all time? The person who's won the most Grand Slams. If you're going to have tournaments that are more important than every other tournament, you then have to say the person who's won the most of them that's the best player. Now, one thing we've probably talked about on this pod more than anything else in its infancy is the new Davis Cup, plus all the other various different formats that tennis is going to flood us with next year. Really interesting this week to hear the top players talk about it in such probably the most definite terms we've heard. Now, basically, what we're seeing is that the majority are saying, if you're going to have this Davis Cup at the end of the year in November, we're not going to be there. Now, that, for me is a massive body blow to the organisers of the Davis Cup, surely. Yeah, it's uh, hugely, hugely challenging for them. Um, There's almost, and we've said this before, there's almost no way Federer and Djokovic are going to turn up for these qualifiers anyway in February. And it sounds like they've kind of sounded them out to say, if we give you wild cards to the main event, would you commit to playing? And they've basically said no. I know it's good that players are involved in these things, but it always seems weird when you're talking about wild cards to go to the players and say, oh, well, well, go on, we'll give you one. If you say you're definitely playing, we'll give you a wild card. But that, that's just the appeal Federer and Djokovic has. You know, you've guaranteed Nadal's there. Obviously, now they've guaranteed Murray will be there. Mm. Presuming he said he would play. Yeah. Or, you know, they might have just not even approach Murray, to be honest. I don't really know. But, um, you know, Federer is is the golden goose of tennis, as people say. And Djokovic is the the third biggest goose. So I mean, it's 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 a real real blow for them. Um, Federer is kind of saying he doesn't feel like the tournament's designed for him in the future anyway, which is 
That's, yeah, that, that's true to a degree. Well, well, it is because realistically, he's not going to be in tennis for the next twenty years. Yeah. I think so. What he actually said was, "I don't know a lot of things for next year. I don't even know about the clay court season." He's not playing the clay court season. I don't know why he's. <laughs> he bothered. says he's going to announce that next month. By the way, oh, he's going to Which announce that he's definitely not playing any <laughs> clay court tennis. We can dream of yeah, the bizarre. <laughs> and then he said, "I have a hard time seeing myself playing in February about the qualifiers." I, don't, I highly doubt it, of course. We'll see what happens. I don't think this was designed for me anyhow. This is designed for the future generation of players. That comes across in black and white a bit grumpy. A bit sort of like, oh, fuck, they didn't even really think of me. I don't think that's how he's intended it, though. I think what he's intended is that, you know what, who cares if I play? If I play one year, so be it. But realistically, it doesn't matter so much. I think that's a little bit naive on his part. Because realistically, he is the golden goose and they need him. And equally, they need someone like Novak Djokovic. Now, if we just look at what he said, he says, I'm not 100% sure at the moment. We, as the ATP, have our own competition that we're going to, as it looks like, organise and launch, which is only going to be five weeks after the Davis Cup. I just feel like the Davis Cup, data the Davis Cup, is really bad, especially for the top players. I will prioritise the World Team Cup. Now, he's partly got a vested interest in, in the Team Cup, right? He is obviously a big part of the ATP. Yeah, so, I mean, the players own... 50% of the ATP, so it's it's an important, uh, you know, they probably want that to succeed more than the Davis Cup mm. uh, in many ways. I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily true of every player, but particularly this new Davis Cup format that feels nothing like the old one, there's probably less allegiance to that. The World Team Cup in many ways makes more sense at the stage. It's a, it's a good competitive way to kickstart the season. There'll be ranking points on offer. Still decent prize money, I imagine. Mm. Having said that, I still think a lot of very, very top players will turn up to this Davis Cup event because apparently it's going to be a 450,000 appearance fee or something, um, <laughs> which which makes it kind of worth it. I think that's per team, I hasten to add. Right, I was going to say, that's so per, mammoth like, per player. Um, but that's still a, a decent old whack mm. for whichever players are going there. Um, Federer and Djokovic don't really need that so much, I suppose. Just returning to that that point on Federer not being about him, it's obviously not about him, but the the whole reason this Davis Cup changed format is to attract the top players. Now, if Mm. they're turning around and saying, no, we're not coming, and arguably the biggest player was Zverev's comments. Well, Zverev seemed pretty forthright. I mean, he was really... uh, I think he basically said, not only am I not going to play... But you'll find no one else will as well. I mean, we we know that's kind of what we love about Sasha Zverev is that he doesn't mince his words. He says, "I will not play Davis Cup in November. In November, I do not want to play tennis anymore." All the top guys will say the same thing. We have one and a half months off in our season, and that's the end of November in tournament. Making the tournament at the end of November, it's crazy. We are all tired. Now that is true, and as he yeah. mentions, also they've had discussions with the ATP on making the season shorter, not longer. So for then the ITF to go, oh, we'll just tap this on the end. There's a space there. It's kind of inevitable that organising bodies will see those gaps and go, let's put another tournament in it. But it's also exceptionally short-sighted, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is just the problem with tennis as a whole at the minute, isn't it? There's just all these different bodies serving different purposes. I I think the ITF's going to lose this war, to be perfectly honest. I'm not saying I think the Davis Cup will be a complete disaster. I still think it can do quite well in this kind of World Cup style, even without Federer and Djokovic, I sure. suppose. I still think it can be quite fun. I think um, if the format stands up, you know, we see it with the Ryder Cup in golf. I know obviously all the biggest players play it, but I think that format works even without the biggest players. We can see that small names become big celebrities through that. 
I think you might see something similar with the Davis Cup. And there's something to be said for it being for your country as well. You know, there's not too many opportunities to do that. If you see, um, well, I guess the Olympics, the amount of support the Brits get on that level, you know, mm. you wouldn't. It attracts a different kind of fan, I suppose, which yeah. is what the Davis Cup does traditionally. Um, as long as the TV deals and stuff are right, yeah. by the way. <laughs> but that's another issue for um, another day. But, you know, like Jamie Murray and stuff, I, I doubt that many. British fans really rigorously watch him week in, week out, all year round. I don't think many people care if Jamie Murray wins the Shanghai Masters. You're right. But, you know, they'll they'll bloody love him. And and Dom Inglot is probably an even better example. You know, I I doubt most people can tell you what he's up to most of the year. I don't think he gets stopped in the street very much. But he's, on those days, it's a really nice thing for doubles to kind of matter Hmm. in the context of a singles thing. And, you know, I think that's the sort of thing that makes the Davis Cup kind of special. Yeah. Whether the ATP Team Cup will provide that as well, I'm still not sure exactly what the format's going to be. It's all kind of cloak and daggers at the minute. Now, George, because you're very busy and important, you were given the opportunity to vote in the WTA Player Awards this week. Uh, I believe you squeezed in just before the Friday deadline. I did. On deadline day, was it, that you voted? It was pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> Typically organised. It's a little early, isn't it, actually? Probably just worth saying. I mean, they've I still got the end of season finals. Is it because stuff. they want to do the awards at the end yeah, of season I finals? So. But I mean, this year, it, it's pretty uh, pretty open. I think the kind of player of the year is we'll, we'll kind of come on to. Well, um, yeah, so the, the nominees <laughs> player of the year are Simona Halep, Angelique Kerber, Petra Kvitova, Naomi Osaka and Caroline Wozniacki. All of whom, I think, have a reasonable claim on that award, no? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've got the four slam winners. Uh, Kvitova, I believe, has got the highest number of titles right um certainly got high up there in terms of match wins uh she's not really done it at slams so she's off for me mm. that's my immediate curl <laughs> um to be perfectly honest when you split all four grand slam winners i've gone for world number one because she's clearly shown the consistency outside the year to earn that and uh it was i think for what halep had been through in previous seasons the amount of setbacks she's had um i thought it was a really really great mental effort to come back and win that French Open. Um, her form at the Slams after that hasn't been great, um, but she still went on and did quite well in the American hardcourt swing. Mm. Uh, she'll finish the season injured, but she's guaranteed world number one now. Right. Um, so she gets my vote. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I think I probably would. Uh, that's the insight from the Love Tennis Podcast. WTA Player of the Year is the world number one. <laughs> <laughs> Genius. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I always... I like that Caroline Wozniacki is finally... Uh, challenging at the top level, you know, more consistently. I think she, if you can go back five years or three years, I suppose, and talk about she was ri- almost ridiculed as this world number one who'd never, you know, hit the heights at Grand Slams, and it seemed just farcical that she was basically cheating her way into world number one. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that's unfair, but she was often hit with that stick, and I don't think you can hit her with that stick anymore. So, from that perspective, I think she's had a great year. Obviously, Naomi Osaka. You know, she isn't nominated for any of the other words awards because she doesn't fit the categories. But if there was a breakthrough player of the year, there's no doubt in my mind that she would absolutely walk it. Not to mention the fact that I think there's a lot of sympathy that no one's talking about her US Open <laughs> victory because of other things that happened, which we've already talked about a lot. Um, there's a doubles team of the year award, which uh, who did you vote for? You vote for the, the oh, Czech pair, which is uh, Barbara Krejcikova and Katarina Siniakova. There's not much more to say about that, is there? They've uh, had a very good year. I mean, again, there's a lot of kind of spread uh, during the doubles, but th- those were the pairing I yeah. thought have kind of shone. Uh, I mean, I must admit, 
I don't watch as much doubles as I do singles because I am a one-man band, really. Yeah. So it's a lot of stuff to watch. But I've I've seen those guys play a few times. So I thought they've done really well. Well, so. they've won they've won the French, won the won Wimbledon. You know, yeah, and that's hard to do in itself, isn't it? So I think you know, that's they earned my vote. So Fair well enough. done. <laughs> uh, most improved player of the year. It's Burton's Gorgas, Kasatkina, Mertens, Quang, and Saznovich. Who did you go for in this category? I went for Burton's, actually. I, th- I thought she's had a really, really good year. I, th- I believe she's still in with a shot of making the WTA finals. Right. Um, I just thought she's she's really stepped up. She looks... She's surprised me on a lot of different surfaces. I saw a lot of her on the clay. Um, lost a Kvitova in the Madrid final. Mm. Um, I just, she won in Cincy, obviously. Yeah. Which was, you know, a big surprise. That's a big title for a player like Burton's. Burton's, to me, is a player kind of knocking on the door of the top 20, but reaching a limit, and she's gone far above and beyond that. Um, the other guys had good years. Kasek Keener's going to be a very good player. Mm. Merton's has improved a lot, but tailed off a little bit for me. Gorges, semi-finals at Wimbledon, into the top 10. What's interesting about those six players is you don't want to play any of them in a Grand Slam fourth round. Mm. And you very much could if you're one of the top players. Yeah. And that's what's exciting about the women's game, is that they can all uh, do that. Yeah, Wang Qiang's had a, a brilliant time in China, hasn't mm. he? Yeah, great swing. There's a, a, new, a newcomer award as well, but you say that's pretty much... Uh, Arena Sabalenka is going to walk that. Is that, is that yeah, your... I mean, Sabalenka's had a remarkable year, She's really. going to be number 11 in the world. Um, yeah, you know. um, and... I think this is just the start for her. I think a lot of people are looking at Osaka as the one to dominate, but Savalenka's going to be right up with her. Um, I'm expecting big things for her next season, and she'll get that, I imagine. Finally, uh, WTA Comeback Player of the Year. It's a player whose ranking previously dropped due to injury or personal reasons, and current season's results helped restore ranking. Uh, Belinda Bencic, Bethany Matic-Sands, Alia Tomljanovic, and uh, Serena Williams. Yeah, heard of her? Uh, yeah, she's been around a bit. Um, you you vote for Serena, is that right? I did. It's a two horse race for me, really. Um, Matek Sands, she won the mixed doubles with Jamie Murray after that horrific injury. I mean, that knee Wimbledon. injury that was down on on fourteen, wasn't it? And it was just one of the most unpleasant injuries you ever like to see. She slipped running forward for a volley, slipped uh, as happens on lush grass courts early in Wimbledon week, and just knee basically fell apart, and she was howling on court. You know, it was one of the open courts at Wimbledon. You could hear it across everywhere. It was a really unpleasant day, actually. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, amazing that she's back and, and won a Grand Slam in mixed doubles. And she's one of the best doubles players in the world, by the way. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, but Serena's pipped her. Serena has just, I think, you know, coming back from pregnancy within a year of that, getting to two Grand Slam finals in singles is just pretty amazing, isn't it? Really? And, and I know we've talked about it a lot, but remember, this is not just coming back from having a baby, which is tough in itself. It's coming back from a very traumatic birth yeah. to return, you know, and in, in very quick time. And she's 36 as well, don't forget. I yeah. mean, it's The body does not recover as easily. Yeah, it's, I think she, she will probably win that. Yeah, and deservedly so too. Speaking of knee injuries, actually, because we mentioned Bethany Matak-Sands, uh, Juan Martín del Potro has ended his season with, a, I believe, a fractured patella yeah. in the most mundane incident. It's horrible. It's unreal, really. Um, against Chorich, ended that first set of their third-round match in Shanghai. Um, literally just tumbled on court. Really innocuous. His, his knee just hit the, the hard court. Um, there's a really funny scene with the physio kind of 
playing around with it, saying, oh, there's no structural damage. It's when You'll they put fine. their thumbs in to feel if the ligaments have gone, basically. Yeah. So he was saying, you know, no structural damage. He finally tries to play on for a couple of games, decides he can't. Uh, ends the match. And, yeah, two days later, he's basically fractured his kneecap. But he might be back for the Australian Open, so it's not quite as serious as we thought. No. Right? So, well, it's a... Yeah, so these fractures generally take about six to eight weeks to heal, I mm. think, from my limited medical history on this <laughs> uh and then the full recovery in terms of you know re-strengthening your leg because he's in a yeah. splint now and stuff so um that typically takes about three months okay um it, the the news from his kind of camps being uh targeting australian open or delray beach which is in february right okay. so i i suspect he won't make australia personally <laughs> Time to look a bit closer to home. Some of the Brits. Joe Conter's had a pretty, um, well, not traumatic, but she sacked her coach, Michael Joyce, her third in three years, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. And uh, she's now looking. It's been a tough year for Joe. I mean, we spoke to Anki Othalong last time, and she admitted that it had been a tough year, and that the almost that sort of these things happen, you know. When you have such an astronomical rise, as, as Joe did, sometimes you then have to have the yang to the ying. Now, she is trialling with, and I'm glad I don't have to spell it, Dimitri... Z- Zavialov <laughs> is the closest I can get to pronouncing that correctly. Sounds lovely. Uh, now, he's obviously got quite a good history with um, Bashinsky, is that right? Yeah, so he did well with Vavrinka. So I think Vavrinka and he worked together from when he was a little boy, really. Right. Um, took him up to kind of the top 10. Obviously, then Magnus Norman has taken over since and taken Vavrinka to kind of Grand Slam heights. Mm. Um, but yes, he's done quite well with Bashinsky, who's a player who's had kind of a lot of injury problems. Um, and she's talked in the past about giving up tennis. And she went to the French Open semis with him in 2017. Sure. Uh, they split in May. Um, apparently, he's quite a, a quiet, uh, studious coach, not one to kind of get in your face. I think it's interesting that when he got together with Tamea Bashinsky, she was, I mean, a real ebb in her career. You know, she was considering sacking it in, I read, to take up hotel management. <laughs> now, I've got nothing against hotel management, but to then go back and, and reach, you know, two Grand Slam semifinals and back into the top 10, that suggests to me he's got a very strong mental side to his coaching game. Yeah, I think he's a, a good motivator. He's someone who, you know, clearly builds quite a good bond uh, with players. I think Conta's situation is quite interesting as a whole. I think, as, as we've kind of said, you know, three coaches in the last three years. I think her stock's at its lowest since she started chopping and changing now. You look at kind of the two, the last two coaches she's attracted in terms of uh, name. Wim Fissett, I think, is as good a coach as Conta could have got and can get. You know, he's a very, mm. very good coach. He's gone on to take uh, Kerber to Wimbledon this year. Uh, Michael Joyce has worked with Sharapova before. Who's looking at Joe Conta now between the 40s and 50s and thinking, that's someone I really believe can go on and do it. You know, she's 27. There are younger players who look stronger. Um, Has she already exceeded her potential? Is she going to get back to world number four? I don't think so. I think as a coach looking in, it's hard to kind of say, I believe I'll take her higher than that. Do I believe she can win a Grand Slam title? If everything goes in her favour one week, it's possible. But mm. I don't see her winning a Grand Slam title now. I think it's getting harder and harder in the women's game. So, I, you know, I think sacking Wim Fissett was a big mistake. Sacking Kirill before that was a mistake until she got Wim Fissett. It's not worked with Michael Joyce. Now she'll probably go to a slightly lower profile coach. Still, a, you know, 
Sevilla off if that is who she ends up sticking with. He's a good coach. He's yeah. done really well. Is he going to win a Grand Slams? Is she going to win Grand Slams? Probably not, I right. think. But if she can get herself back to a highly competitive level, then that seems like a success. Yeah, and you know, top, she should be aiming back in the top 20 sooner rather than later. Definitely. Um, talking of, of Brits moving up the rankings, great to see Katie Boulter uh, <laughs> break into the top 100. I think for the first time in her career, uh, she's up to 94 in the world at the moment, and depending on how she gets on this week. So yeah. she's obviously made it, made huge progress. I know Anki Othvong is very proud of, of what that group of young British girls have done. Yeah, and she um, had a really, really good run in Tianjin, uh, lost to Carolina Pliskova mm. uh, in the quarterfinals, I believe. Um, sure. Took a set off her. You know, that's a former world number one player who's been in good form, went on to reach the final. Um, she's just, picking up bits and pieces, isn't she? Yeah, and she, uh, there was whenever Sakari that mm. week. Sakari's a very solid top 50 player. Yeah, um, yeah, I think Bolter's showing a lot of steel, a lot of improvement generally improving week by week she's had some good results this year now the challenges you know, it's always easy to get to the top 100 they say but it's 100 times harder to stay there and it only gets harder and harder to climb per 10 in the rankings now mm. but automatic entry to grand slams in the australian open should be almost sealed you'd hope for her that's that's a really good starting point yeah and uh, let's not forget as well that Jack Draper has just won, I think, his third Futures title yeah, in a short period of time. Now, you and I watched him in the boys' final. Against the goats. Uh, yeah, against... <laughs> against uh, is he is he from Taiwan? I think that's yeah. his name. Um, and his name is... I cannot pronounce his name. I've already m- murdered one name today. Uh, but he's won three Futures finals and, and is also making his way up, I think, into the sort of... He's in the top 500 now. And, he's only about 150 off. Andy Murray. It's not saying much, but yeah, so future's bright for British tennis. That's the short answer here, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, it's very unheard of for a 16-year-old to be winning. He went back-to-back future's titles a month ago, and mm. he's won another one now. Um, so I presume the next step up for him soon enough will be the the Challenger Tour. And if he start, continues making waves there as a 16-year-old, you know, you and I saw him. He's got a big serve. He's got a big game. He's physically probably more ready than the goats that sem- that semi-final he played was four and a half hours mm. 18 uh, 19 17 in yeah. the third set squandered nine match points and still won yeah physically for a 16 year old he's massive yeah does wear his cap the wrong way around can't abide I like that it. I like no it. i'm afraid jack <laughs> i'm a big fan but i just don't think backwards caps are going to make it at the top level but other than that i'm very excited i, I think that's all we've got time for today it's been a pleasure having you george and we'll catch you next time. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.